I'm Dr. Jeff Donovan. I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome back to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast, Season 4, Episode Number 6. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was produced for hair loss practitioners around the world who care for patients with hair loss. Each week, I review a handful of studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you digest them, and then give you some thoughts on how a given study just might change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, scarring alopecia. These are studies in all different types of hair loss. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was produced by the Donovan Hair Academy. This podcast was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss. It was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a potpourri of different studies, and today it's my great pleasure to review with you five studies from the past few months. For those of you who want a brief five to ten minute overview, a mini podcast within our larger podcast, well, I'll give that to you now. And for those of you who want a bit more detail, detail that will allow you to incorporate these studies into your practice, well, you and I will dive into those in just a minute. Thanks so much for joining me on this incredible journey. Today I'll be reviewing five studies. I'll begin by a study addressing scalp itching in patients with dermatomyositis, a study by Chirino and colleagues, a really fascinating study showing why patients with scalp dermatomyositis just might be so refractory to treatments. The itching in scalp dermatomyositis can be quite debilitating. Dermatomyositis is an autoimmune condition that is associated with both skin and muscle findings, skin rashes, muscle weakness, as well as a whole host of systemic symptoms. But patients develop scalp itching, and it doesn't always go away with topical steroids. It doesn't always go away with hydroxychloroquine. In fact, it doesn't always go away with methotrexate or other immunosuppressants. And this study by Torino and colleagues shows us that there is a neuropathy and there's a decrease in epidermal nerve fibers. And this might help explain the refractory nature of scalp itching in patients with dermatomyositis. Then we'll go on to talk about scurvy. Scurvy was certainly quite prevalent in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. It's still with us today. It's estimated that 3-10% to of North Americans have vitamin C deficiency, and this number may be as high as 40-80% to in those in underdeveloped countries. But scurvy is still with us, and a nice study by Timbunde in Curious, December 2022, describes three patients with scurvy. Scurvy is easy to miss. There are many conditions that were once so prevalent in the world, including certain infectious diseases and here a nutritional deficiency, that we just don't see as much anymore and are easy to miss. And we'll take a look at the classic perifollicular bleeding and the follicular hyperkeratosis, the corkscrew hairs that often occur on gravity-dependent areas like the legs. And we'll walk through this concept of scurvy together 
and develop an understanding on what blood tests are needed in someone with suspected scurvy, what are the histologic findings, what are the cutoffs, what do we need to know about scurvy? And we'll use this nice study by Tumbunde in Curious as our lead point. Then we'll go on to a really nice study looking at cutaneous pili migrans. What is cutaneous pili migrans? Well, it's a condition where hair is trapped in the epidermis or the dermis, and the hair kind of moves as time goes by, and it very much mimics cutaneous larva migrans due to a hookworm. But cutaneous pili migrans is not due to a hookworm. It's a hair that's found its way into the skin. And we'll take a look at what this means and how it presents. And we'll use a nice study in the Journal of Pediatrics describing a 19-month-old with cutaneous pili migans, migrans of the sole of the foot. And we'll take a look at both adult and pediatric cases that have been described. Then we'll go on to look at a quiz case from the European Journal of Internal Medicine. This is a really nice case of a patient, 39 years of age, female patient who has lost pubic and axillary hair. The patient has had no menstrual cycles for 19 years. Menstrual cycles stopped after delivery of her baby 19 years ago. She experienced some postpartum hemorrhage and has not had periods since. Does that information help you describe the diagnosis? Well, if it does, that's great. If it doesn't, well, let's go looking at this together. That description of a patient with pubic and axillary hair loss with a history of postpartum hemorrhage is descriptive of a very specific diagnosis. So let's take a look at that together. And then we'll go on to look at a study by Begg and colleagues in Current Biology, a fascinating study looking at how analysis of hair led to a better understanding of what may have contributed to the death of Ludwig van Beethoven. The authors were able to obtain a number of hair samples and using various genetic tests were able to show that likely some genetic predisposition to liver disease along with a history of alcohol use along with hepatitis B infection may have contributed to Beethoven's early death. And we'll walk through that together. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then by a study by Chirino and colleagues titled Small Fiber Neuropathy and Intractable Scalp Pruritus in Dermatomyositis Patients. I really like this study. I think it gives some new understanding about why patients with scalp dermatomyositis have such tough-to-treat itch sometimes. Dermatomyositis is a chronic autoimmune disease. It occurs at an estimated incidence of around 1 in 100,000 individuals. It can affect children. It can affect adults. In the adult age group, it typically affects individuals in the 40s and 50s, but can affect younger patients. Dermatomyositis is important to recognize it can be a mimicker of many different conditions. It can present with various rashes that not only mimic other autoimmune diseases, but mimic various types of dermatitis. And scalp dermatomyositis often mimics many issues like seborrheic dermatitis, contact dermatitis, and it's easy to miss scalp dermatomyositis. And the reason it's so important to recognize this diagnosis is a small percentage of individuals have associated cancer. 
and they may develop cancer in the future, they may have had cancer before, or they may have concurrent cancer, but it has an association with malignancy in a small proportion of patients, and that's important to recognize. Now, dermatomyositis can affect many different organs. The name dermatomyositis suggests it has an effect on skin and muscle, and certainly those are two very important sites and can be important in the diagnosis. Patients can present with characteristic skin findings like uh, Gautron papules, Gautron sign, which refers to bumps and redness over the MCP and the PIP joints. They can present with rashes over the neck and the chest, as well as periungual erythema, redness around the uh, nail beds. And they can, of course, present with muscle weakness. Not all patients have muscle weakness. There are patients with dermatomyositis that just have skin involvement with no muscle involvement, and there are patients with skin involvement and asymptomatic muscle involvement. You can identify muscle involvement on MRI or EMG or biopsy, but clinically they can walk upstairs and brush their hair and they're fine. But dermatomyositis can affect multiple different organs of the body, including the joints, the esophagus, lungs, heart, blood vessels. It's truly a systemic issue. Now, scalp involvement in dermatomyositis is often resistant to therapy. And I'd like to remind you of two important studies in the literature which have looked at scalp involvement in dermatomyositis. It's important to know about Kesteler and Callan, Dr. Jeff Callan's study in 1994, published in JAMA, titled Scalp Involvement in Dermatomyositis, Often Overlooked or Misdiagnosed. So this study in 1994 highlighted the frequent involvement of the scalp in patients with dermatomyositis. The authors showed that an itchy scalp was indeed a very common manifestation of scalp dermatomyositis. And they showed that a diffuse scaly dermatosis with erythema, atrophy, and often a non-scarring alopecia was present in about 82% of patients with dermatomyositis. The point of this study was to highlight that patients with dermatomyositis often have scalp involvement. We pay a lot of attention as dermatologists to focusing on the rashes on the face, around the eyelids, around the nail beds, the shawl sign, and those are indeed very important. But the purpose of the 1994 study is to remind us that the scalp is so often involved a follow-up study to that by Tilstra and colleagues in the Archives of Dermatology was titled Scalp Dermatomyositis Revisited, and the authors of this study sought to revisit the 1994 study by Dr. Callan and colleagues to look into this concept of scalp involvement in dermatomyositis even more. They found that 15 of their 24 dermatomyositis patients had scalp involvement, that's 62%. And one-third of those patients with scalp involvement had a non-scarring hair loss. All 15 of those patients with scalp involvement were females. Now here's an important point of this study, is that scalp disease was so highly resistant to treatment. It is difficult to treat for many patients. Of 13 patients that received high-potency topical steroids, only one had a partial response. Of 11 patients who were treated with oral immunosuppressants, only four had an improvement in skin symptoms, 
but none of them had an improvement in scalp symptoms. 10 patients receiving hydroxychloroquine, none had a resolution of scalp symptoms. Two of seven responded partially to methotrexate. One of five responded partially to mycophenolate mofetil. One patient had a full resolution of scalp symptoms with IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin therapy. So it really highlights how challenging scalp dermatomyositis can be, and many patients continue with very intractable pruritus. And so why is this occurring? Well, the authors of this new study, which I'll point out in just a minute, really have suggested that epidermal nerve fibers are being affected in scalp dermatomyositis. So before we get into that, that study, let me just remind you that some authors have reported that severe scalp itching is present in up to 71% of patients with dermatomyositis. Patients can not only have itching, but crawling, burning, a whole bunch of different sensations, and that is a suggestion of some neuropathy. And so Chirino and colleagues sought to address this issue of nerve damage or neuropathy in patients with scalp dermatomyositis. They had 15 patients with dermatomyositis who had scalp itching that were in the study, and data was compared to 12 healthy volunteers. The patients in this Chirino study had scalp itching without any improvement in existing therapies. They took two biopsies. One was from the parietal area, two centimeters above the right ear, and one was from the occipital region above the occipital protuberance. They subjected these biopsies to histology and immunofluorescence. They assessed epidermal nerve fibers with PGP 9.5, protein gene product 9.5, which is a stain to assess epidermal nerve fibers, and dermal nerve fibers were assessed with CGRP and substance P. And so the key to this study was the finding that epidermal nerve fiber density was lower in patients with dermatomyositis compared to controls. It was lower in the parietal area and markedly lower in the occipital area. And so the point of this study is that patients with dermatomyositis have this marked change in nerve fibers. And this gives clues to the basis of the highly refractory and recalcitrant itching that many patients with dermatomyositis experience. And so the authors all in all propose that there's some sort of small fiber neuropathy that may be here in patients with dermatomyositis. And I think that's really helpful because I certainly see many patients with dermatomyositis and we're trying to balance evidence-based treatments at all times. And as we're trying to balance evidence-based treatment, we're trying to balance safety. And so we start with topical steroids, and sometimes we, we waste time. Patients go home, we'll see them back in a month or two or three, depending on the clinic and the scenario, and they have a, a month or two or three of sleepless nights, of low quality of life. Doc, can't you get rid of my itching? Okay, we'll use steroid injections. I'll add hydroxychloroquine. We'll see you back. Another three months go by. You know, Doc, I'm doing what you say, but it's not working. Okay, let's try methotrexate. Let's try something. And months and months go by, and these patients live with this intractable pruritus, which just impairs every aspect of their life. <laughs> they, they don't sleep well. They don't engage in social activities. They don't put on a hat and go and play tennis. They don't put on a hat and go golfing. They don't put on a hat and go sit out on a patio and enjoy time with their friends. It really has a big impact. And what this study teaches us 
is that there's a neuropathy here. And addressing this with anti-inflammatory treatments, you know, may not be the way to go. And that maybe we do need to either combine treatments with traditional immunosuppressants or add instead treatments like topical gabapentin, treatments like oral gabapentin and pregabalin and amitriptyline and other TCAs and antidepressants that have impacts on pruritus and others. So I think this study is really helpful because it reminds us that in patients with dermatomyositis with severe refractory pruritus, let's not waste too much time with the immunosuppressants. We may need the immunosuppressants for skin disease, absolutely. We may need immunosuppressants for lung disease, heart disease, joint disease, uh, the systemic nature of the disease, absolutely. But if it's the cutaneous symptoms that we're addressing, and sometimes it isn't, especially for many patients in the early stages, we want to remember that there's an, a small fiber neuropathy here, and we need to address that. So we move on now to a nice study by Timbunde in Curious 2022. I really like this journal, Curious. Studies are free online. They're available with Creative Commons license. There are many journals that are moving towards that free online aspect. And I think this is so important. We saw that in the COVID-19 pandemic, and we get so much done in the world when we share data freely like this. And so I think this is great. I am all in favor of this open access approach. Curious is open access. Skin appendage disorders is open access after one year. I wish it would be open access immediately. There are many journals, JAD case reports, open access. There are many journals which are having this platform, and I think this is wonderful, to really get data shared, to get information shared, to allow people to have access to information. So I really like Curious. And we're going to take a look at a study called Scurvy, a diagnosis not to be missed. There's no doubt about it. We miss a lot of scurvy. There can be some pretty subtle presentations. And we're of the mindset that scurvy is gone, that it's a condition of sailors in the 1500s and there's no more scurvy. There's some pretty surprising data that I'll review with you in just a minute, suggesting that scurvy's with us in low-income individuals in North America. One in five may have scurvy. In underdeveloped countries, most people have scurvy. 70%, 80%, depending on the study you read. So let's take a look at scurvy. Clearly, we need to know scurvy really well. It's deadly. It kills people if you don't address it. And it's one of the most easiest conditions to treat. Within a matter of days of treating scurvy, scurvy patients feel a world of difference. So it really is one of the world's oldest known nutritional disorders, and it still remains an issue. It's tough to get a good sense of how prevalent vitamin C deficiency is. Some studies suggest that in developed countries, it may be 1% or 2%, but more recent studies from the U.S. data suggest that that's probably 7%. And in individuals in the U.S. living in low-income situations, that may be as high as 17%. But studies in Canada suggest it's probably 3%, in the U.S., 7%. And in low-income countries, the data is all over the place as well, but most studies suggesting 50 to 
Populations in the world with the most vitamin C replete populations would be Germany, Austria, England, France, Canada. And the countries of the world with the greatest proportion of the population being vitamin C deficient is India, Uganda, Russia, Nigeria. So let's talk about vitamin C deficiency. There's some really fascinating books out there about vitamin C deficiency and just how fatal it was and how sailors really feared going on these voyages because they knew they were most likely to die. It, it was that it was that clear in these transatlantic voyages and and long voyages. Scurvy killed more people than any other disease. And it's said that scurvy killed more than 2 million sailors between 1500 and the mid-1800s. And it was so common that governments assumed that 50% of individuals that were sent out on these voyages would die. And there's some wonderful books. Stephen Bone wrote a book, Scurvy, How a Surgeon, a Mariner, and a Gentleman Solved the Greatest Medical Mystery of the Age of Sail. Stephen Bone says that scurvy was responsible for more deaths at sea than storms, shipwrecks, combat, and all other diseases combined. So the first symptom of scurvy is lethargy, irritability, and a feeling that you just don't want to eat. A, a general feeling of you don't want to do much. And at one point it was thought that this was a condition of laziness, that... You're getting this disease because you're lazy. And of course, it's not. This is just one of the first symptoms of scurvy. You don't really feel like doing much. You just want to sit there and you don't want to eat. The findings of joint aches and these bleeding gums and these bleeding uh, rash-like areas on the legs, trunk, arms, they come later, but it's the lethargy that happens first. It was Dr. James Lind, who was a Scottish doctor, who played a key role in, in solving some of the mysteries of scurvy. But really, it was many before him that suggested that citrus fruits had an important role in scurvy treatment. And it's interesting because there were many ship doctors in the past, before Dr. Lind's day, that suggested that fresh fruits are the way to go when people have the symptoms of scurvy. But it really didn't catch on, and not everyone ado adopted that view. And so Dr. Lind did a study, and it was one of the first clinical trials in the world, and it was a study to assess the role of acidic treatments in scurvy. Now, Dr. Lind thought that scurvy was somehow related to decaying of tissues in the body. These sailors just sort of withered away. And he thought that that decay of tissue, putrefaction, would be helped out by consuming acids. So he conducted a study. He had 12 sailors, divided them into six groups, two people in each group, two, 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 two. Everyone had the same diet, but they had one modification. Group one had a quart of cider added to their plan. Group two had 25 drops of sulfuric acid. Group three had vinegar. Group four had seawater. Group five had two oranges and one lemon each day. 
and group six had spicy paste and barley water. Now group five, and these were all people with scurvy, people that were unwell, people that were not able to do their duties. Group five ran out of fruit after six days, but after six days, one person had fully recovered and one had almost recovered. And in four of the groups, there was absolutely no effect. And the cider group had a little bit of a benefit. Shortly after this experiment, Dr. Lind retired from the Navy and practiced privately as a physician. But in 1753, he published a treatise of the scurvy. And sadly, it was mostly ignored for quite some time. So we had all these ship doctors in years before Lind, you know, sharing this information, ignored. Lind publishes this treatise of the scurvy, ignored. Of course, it eventually did catch on. But one of the first clinical trials looking at the benefits of citrus fruits in the management of scurvy. And of course, in future voyages, it was recognized that the way to go about surviving these long voyages was the consumption of citrus fruits, lemons and limes especially. So let's look at Tembunde. Tembunde and colleagues in this journal, Curious. They describe three patients with scurvy. These were adult patients. And the authors describe here how their histories of homelessness, food insecurity, poor nutrition, led them to have restrictive diets and put them at risk for scurvy. So patient one was a 35-year-old man. He had a history of homelessness for several years with minimal access to food. And he came into the emergency department with diffuse body pains and lower extremity purpura, these bruising. He was very malnourished, he had a body mass index of 13.2, generalized muscle wasting, and examination of the lower extremities showed these perifollicular purpura, this bleeding around the hairs. Lab testing showed an anemia, and we'll come to see in a minute that anemia goes hand in hand with what scurvy does. His Vitamin C concentration was 0.1 milligram per deciliter. The normal is above 0.6. And again, this is available free online. And so do check out this wonderful report, Scurvy, colon, a diagnosis not to be missed. And the authors here show the rash on the legs and the perifollicular purpura. Within two weeks of receiving vitamin C oral therapy, 1,000 milligrams daily, the patient's vitamin C concentration normalized, lower extremity purpura resolved. Patient two was a 30-year-old man who presents to the emergency department with a one-month history of a rash on the lower legs that then spread to the thighs. The doctors noted that the patient had back pain, knee pain, and bruising, and he had painful bleeding gums. Now, we'll come to see in a minute that painful bleeding gums with these Bleeding around hair or this purpuric rash on the lower legs is pretty typical of scurvy. But this was missed. Scurvy can be missed if you're not aware of it and you hadn't had it in your mind in your diagnostic algorithms for lower extremity rashes, for bleeding gums. And so the patient was put on doxycycline, prednisone, because scurvy wasn't recognized. The patient then went to a dermatologist and scurvy was diagnosed. The patient had scattered non-blanching, folliculocentric, hyperkeratotic red papules. So red bumps. That when you press on them, the redness doesn't go away. 
And what was in those red bumps, in many of the red bumps, was corkscrew hairs. A very thin hair on the legs, could be the arms, could be the abdomen, but often on the legs. That is very fine. You need to look hard. You need your dermatoscope. These hairs do not jump out at you and say, I am a corkscrew hair. These are fine hairs. They're different than the thick corkscrew hairs of tinea capitis on the scalp. These are fine hairs. They look like lint. And so if you're thinking you're going to pick up the arm and look at the red bump and look for corkscrew hairs, you're not going to see them. So you need some kind of a magnifying glass and a dermatoscope is ideal. And you need to be of the mindset with patients with red rashes that are red bumps around follicles that look like a vasculitis, looks like a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. I got to look for the corkscrew hairs because they might not be in every hair. And they're really fine. And it looks like lint. Your feeling is, there's lint on my dermatoscope. Those are corkscrew hairs. A skin biopsy was taken from the right lower leg and showed features of scurvy. So again, do check it out. The purpuric rash on the lower legs, when you look at it, you'd think very much this is a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. All these tiny red bumps. And the skin biopsy is typical. You get the follicular hyperkeratosis. And the pathologist is able to see bleeding around the hairs. And there's often a, a mononuclear cell infiltrate. But it's this bleeding around the hairs with the follicular hyperkeratosis that helps with the diagnosis. And of course, the blood test showed a serum vitamin C concentration of less than 0.1 milligram per deciliter. And he had an anemia as well. He was started on vitamin C, but unfortunately lost the follow-up. And finally, they present a 52-year-old woman who presents to dermatology for evaluation of bilateral lower extremity purpura, bleeding, bruising, joint pain, decreased mobility, and skin fragility. The patient indicated that her diet had been limited because of dental pain. And on exam, she had non-blanching folliculocentric petechial lesions of the legs up to the thighs. And so when you look at these lesions, this follicular hyperkeratosis, you'll come to realize two things. First of all, it can be subtle. Second of all, many human beings have this subtle follicular erythema. I think it's really important to be on the, on the lookout for scurvy, especially in the right context of poor nutrition. Even patients who come in to see you looking well-nourished you know, you need to certainly be on the lookout for scurvy in patients presenting with purpuric rashes. But as you start having your mindset for these rashes, you'll realize that many patients have subtle follicular hyperkeratosis, mimicking a keratosis pilaris-like presentation, sometimes on the arm, sometimes on the legs. And so you will move into a period of your life where you will feel that this could be scurvy. This could be keratosis pilaris. This could be a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. And that's okay. That's healthy to have this wide differential. And the ability to examine the area, to look for corkscrew hairs, to have a history. Mrs. So-and-so, I'd like to ask you some additional questions. I'm seeing a certain rash on your legs. Can you review with me the supplements that you take? I take every supplement. I take a multivitamin. I take vitamin C, 2,000 milligrams a day. I take omega-3s. I take turmeric. I take... Okay. 
what's your typical diet? I eat healthy. I eat mostly salads. I'm very healthy. I eat fruits and vegetables. You've ruled out scurvy. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but you've ruled out scurvy. And so I think that when we have these presentations, a history and physical examination goes into addressing a lot of issues. But certainly biopsies can be very helpful and assessment of serum vitamin C can be very helpful. So in this patient, there was an anemia and the vitamin C serum ascorbic acid concentration was less than 0.1 milligrams per deciliter. She was started on vitamin C, 1,000 milligrams, and improved dramatically. So a nice case of the presentation of scurvy with the non-blanching folliculocentric purpura with biopsy showing the follicular hyperkeratosis and the bleeding, the perifollicular bleeding, and corkscrew hairs. So what are the definitions of vitamin C deficiency and insufficiency? Well, less than 0.2 milligrams per deciliter is deficiency, which works out to 11 micromoles per liter in SI units. And it's less than 0.6 for vitamin C insufficiency which is less than 23 to 28 micromoles per liter. So there's different cutoffs for deficiency and insufficiency, just like for vitamin D. There's these cutoffs. Who is at risk for vitamin C deficiency? Well, a lot of us are at risk for vitamin C deficiency because our body can't store vitamin C very well. And as soon as your diet becomes poor, you start running out of vitamin C very quickly. It's an essential vitamin. And symptoms can develop within one to three months of insufficient intake. So who is at risk? Well, individuals with food insecurity, poor nutrition, alcohol use disorder, where there's not other nutritional food being consumed, patients with eating disorders, anorexia, nervosa, babies fed cow's milk are at risk. Cow's milk doesn't have enough vitamin C. Se uh, seniors consuming what's known as the tea and toast diet, a very limited type of diet, individuals who can't afford fruits and vegetables, individuals who are not consuming large amounts of fresh fruits and vegetables because cooking destroys some vitamin C. Often there can still be enough, but it destroys much of vitamin C. Smokers have lower vitamin C levels and therefore have greater needs for vitamin C. Patients with type 1 diabetes have higher vitamin C requirements. Individuals with GI tract disorders, gastrointestinal tract disorders, especially those causing diarrhea, are at risk for vitamin C deficiency. Those with iron ore overload, those with restrictive diets and food allergies. Some patients have food allergies and are very fearful to consume food. Uh, it's very frightening when all the food you eat causes rashes and anaphylaxis, and those individuals are at risk as well. And individuals with dialysis, different types of dialysis, can contribute to vitamin C deficiency. And so what does vitamin C do? Well, it has many roles in the body. It has roles in wound healing, immune function, iron absorption, bone health, and keeping blood vessels healthy so that blood vessels keep the blood cells in and don't let the blood cells out. And so it has many roles. One of the famous roles of vitamin C is its ability to help with collagen synthesis, especially the collagen synthesis that goes into keeping blood vessels healthy. Collagen is part of the basement membrane, 
And vitamin C allows the hydroxylation and cross-linking of procollagen, which is catalyzed by lysyl hydroxylase. And so a deficiency of vitamin C impairs collagen synthesis. There are actually many effects of vitamin C on collagen synthesis. But vitamin C has other roles. It has a role in iron absorption. So if you're vitamin C deficient, you have poor iron absorption and iron deficiency. At least you're at risk for iron deficiency. Vitamin C is a cofactor in many biosynthetic and regulatory enzymes, including those that are involved in hormone synthesis. And tissues with the highest concentrations of vitamin C are the brain, the adrenals, the pituitary. And so if you're vitamin C deficient, you have various hormonal abnormalities as well. And new data has shown that vitamin C has a role in gene transcription and methylation of histones. And so it has various genetic and epigenetic effects. And so vitamin C deficiency has the potential to affect thousands of genes because of these effects on DNA and histones. So we need vitamin C to survive. Without vitamin C, we die. And the pool of vitamin C is usually depleted in about 4 to 12 weeks. And so vitamin C deficiency can manifest in several weeks to several months of poor intake. And again, as I mentioned, the first symptoms are the lethargy and the anorexia. You just want to lie there and do nothing. And that's followed by the classic symptoms of the perifollicular hemorrhage, the gingival bleeding, the triad of perifollicular hemorrhage, gingival bleeding, and those corkscrew hairs is highly suggestive. Skin bruising is very common. When you see a patient with vitamin C deficiency, you're quickly imagining that this patient must be on warfarin, or this patient must be on high dose of aspirin, and they've bumped themselves repeatedly on the legs, on the arms. It could be. It could be that they have a bleeding disorder. It could be that they have medications that are causing bleeding. It could be that they have fragile blood vessels. Yes. It could be that they have what's known as senile purpura. Yes. It could be that they have a vasculitis. Yes. But it could be that they have vitamin C deficiency. So one of the key features of scurvy is hemorrhage, bleeding, bleeding. And this bleeding can occur in any organ. And so patients can have bleeding into muscles, bleeding into bones, bleeding into the eyes, a retrobulbar hemorrhage, bleeding into the heart, causing cardiac tamponade, which is how many people die, bleeding into the nervous system and nerves, causing hemorrhage in nerve sheaths. Bones become brittle. But there's many manifestations. There's joint swelling, myalgias, impaired wound healing, immune dysfunction. The skin findings are really important for us to be aware of, and those are the corkscrew hairs, but other shaped, misshapen hairs are also described, like swan neck hairs, they're called. But you get these hemorrhages around uh, hairs called perifollicular hemorrhages. They're often on the lower extremities, especially initially, because that's where gravity is pushing the blood out of these blood vessels, which can no longer contain these red blood cells. And so you get these rashes on the legs. You can get easy bruising and poor wound healing. Other clinical findings are iron deficiency, folate deficiency, Patients with vitamin C deficiency can't absorb iron. And if you're not consuming foods that have vitamin C, then you're probably not consuming foods that are rich in folate and are rich in other vitamins. And so patients with scurvy have multiple nutritional deficiencies. You really want to think carefully about that, not just send them home with a vitamin C tablet. They're probably deficient in many aspects of their nutrition.
So we can diagnose vitamin C deficiency by a blood test, yes. Sometimes skin biopsies are helpful. There are some classic findings, and the pathologist can readily identify that perifollicular hemorrhage and the follicular hyperkeratosis, which will also be clues. I'd like to remind you that there are some pitfalls, pitfalls in vitamin C testing. You can have a patient with scurvy who yesterday or the day before started taking vitamin C because the patient's spouse was so worried. You need to take this vitamin. And so the patient comes into clinic. They've been taking vitamin C for three days or five days. And you get a vitamin C test back in the serum that's not too abnormal. So if you've recently consumed vitamin C in somewhat significant quantities, your, your vitamin C serum test can look falsely elevated. It can look like you're, you're doing okay in the vitamin C category. And the way you really assess vitamin C in those situations is with testing leukocyte vitamin C. Those tests are hard to come by and they're not available in most centers. So you just have to be aware of that. If you're thinking scurvy, you have to ask, have you had vitamin C? Have you had fruit and vegetables in the last few days? The workup includes vitamin C testing, but you don't stop at vitamin C levels. You test B12, folate, calcium, zinc, ferritin. Those levels are also often low. Patients come in with such a striking presentation that often a biopsy is done. You also often send tests for bleeding studies, coagulation studies, for vasculitis workups. These patients are very sick, often. And so you're worried about this patient, and so you often do extensive workups. The treatment is with vitamin C. 1,000 milligrams per day was administered to these patients. Symptom improvement starts within days to weeks. It can take the corkscrew hairs about a month to improve. But remember in the Lind study, Dr. Lind, at day five of patients eating those, those citrus fruits, two of the patients had, the two patients in that group had improved. One had improved so much that he was able to resume his duties. And so there can be a very quick improvement in how patients feel. Attention to a good diet is really important, but we mustn't forget when you identify scurvy, you need to identify the underlying cause of the scurvy. If a patient is having scurvy because of poor nutrition, then we need to do everything we can to improve the nutrition. Whether that is having access to good foods, whether that is helping patients find access to social supports that allow them to eat. If a patient is receiving dialysis and has scurvy on account of dialysis, then addressing some of those nutritional needs. If a patient has an eating disorder, addressing those eating disorders. If a patient has a bowel disease that's causing the scurvy, then addressing that bowel disease. So we have to think carefully about all the different causes of vitamin C deficiency. The recommended daily allowance of vitamin C is around 90 milligrams a day for men and 75 milligrams for women. Those doses are higher in pregnancy and lactation. Smoking causes depletion of vitamin C, and so the recommended daily allowances are higher in smokers, about 35 milligrams higher. A large orange every day meets your requirements for vitamin C. A large orange has about 100 milligrams of vitamin C. 
So that's scurvy. I wanted to spend some time on scurvy. We don't talk a lot about scurvy. Scurvy is more common than we realize. We need to be thinking about scurvy. And scurvy is very much still with us. So we move on to a nice study in the Journal of Pediatrics titled, Did You Ever See a Creeping Hair? So I thought that was such a great title. And I said to myself, I gotta go find out. Creeping hair. Sounds interesting. Sounds scary. Well, the creeping hair they're talking about is cutaneous polymigrans. So cutaneous polymigrans is this interesting condition where hair gets trapped in the skin. And on account of movement of the skin by friction, sometimes by moisture, the hair moves in the skin. And it looks like a hookworm. It very much mimics cutaneous larva migrans. And so it can be really scary when you see this black thread-like substance moving around under the skin. So cutaneous polymigrans is a rare skin condition where you have a fragment of hair embedded in the epidermis or the dermis, and the fragment changes position over time. And it causes people to panic and rush to the doctor thinking this could be something lodged in the skin like a worm. And it could be. And so the authors present a 19-month-old girl who was referred out of suspicion for cutaneous larva migrans, this hookworm. Parents noticed that there was a lesion on the sole of the foot, and over a five-day period of observation, it changed position. The lesion appeared when after the girl had played in, the, in a public park on the lawn, and there was nearby moisture around as well. It wasn't painful. It wasn't itchy. child could walk. And the child had not traveled. This was a child from Switzerland. An examination showed that there was a black, semicircular, wire-like lesion on the sole of the foot. And the family took pictures at the beginning and then took pictures five days later and noticed that the wire-like lesion had moved. And so in clinic, the skin of the sole was scratched repeatedly and the wire-like substance was removed and examined under the microscope and found to be a hair. And so the authors were able to visualize this hair shaft under the microscope. And it was a hair shaft without the follicle bulb part. And this confirmed the diagnosis of cutaneous pili migrants. So cutaneous polymigrans is pretty rare. There's been about 50 cases reported in the medical literature. Most patients are from Asia. We'll come to that in a minute. This individual was from Switzerland. Now, the authors don't describe in detail whether this was an individual in Switzerland of Asian background, but it's an individual from Switzerland. The body locations where cutaneous polymigrans can affect in adults includes the feet, the toe, the sole, the ankle, but can also include other areas of friction like the breasts, cheeks, neck, abdomen, and it can be asymptomatic or painful. It's often asymptomatic. And in adults, patients come in, and there's been many great reports in the literature, patients have this line on the neck, and they can't get rid of this line, and they come in and it's noticed that that's a hair trapped under the skin, and it's pulled out, and it's a hair shaft. Pediatric patients can be affected as well, and there's about a dozen cases of cutaneous polymigrans in the literature. The youngest patient is about six months. Most cases occur on the sole of the foot in children, but you can get 
cutaneous polymigrans on the leg, the scalp, and the back. It goes by many names in the literature, so when you do your searches for cutaneous polymigrans, you want to look for buried hair, bristle migrans, burrowing hair, migrating hair, creeping hair. So what causes cutaneous polymigrans? Well, it's not known. It's thought that somehow a hair tip that's sharp gets into the skin, and perhaps wet hair, wet skin, allows that hair to burrow in better, and with repeated friction, with walking or body motion, you can activate the movement of the hair under the skin. And walking without shoes may be a predisposing factor. Haircuts, which leads to lots of fragments of hair, may be a predisposing factor. Most cases of cutaneous polymigrans have occurred in individuals of East Asian background. And it's not known why this is. But it could be that racial background is a, is a factor that's relevant in cutaneous polymigrans. And it could be that these circular cross-sectional hair shape with the high tensile strength somehow facilitates the movement of hair. It's really not known. Treatment involves removing the hair. And so sometimes by scratching the skin, you can get a piece of the hair to pop up and you can remove it with tweezers. Sometimes you have to do a little nick in the skin to allow the hair to be removed. But the treatment is to remove the hair. And so how do you distinguish cutaneous migrans from cutaneous larval migrans due to the hookworm? which is the scariest thing for patients and doctors. I've got this circular thing under my skin and it moves. Well, in cutaneous migrans, it moves linearly, usually, in one direction. It used to be here, now it's here. In cutaneous larva migrans, the track is snake-like or serpiginous and it can move in any direction. Cutaneous larva migrans is itchy, very itchy, often on the feet. And cutaneous polymigrans is often asymptomatic. It can be painful, but it's often asymptomatic. So a nice example of cutaneous polymigrans. We don't talk often about it, but it's an interesting condition we need to know about as hair specialists. So let's move on now to a nice quiz case in the European Journal of Internal Medicine. I really like this title, Secondary Amenorrhea and Absent Axillary Hair. So let's look at the quiz together. See how you do. I'll give you the answer in just a second. So the authors present a case of a 39-year-old female who presents with fatigue, extreme tiredness, muscle pain, shortness of breath for six months. More and more history is obtained from the patient, and it's noted that the patient had not had a menstrual cycle for 19 years. She hasn't had a menstrual cycle since her last pregnancy. The authors report that the patient had a home delivery 19 years ago and she had postpartum hemorrhage and it required her to be hospitalized and she needed blood. Clinical examination showed no axillary hair, underarm hair, no pubic hair. Lab tests showed hypoprolactinemia, hypocortisolism, secondary hypothyroidism, low free T4, low free T3 and low LH, luteinizing hormone, low follicular follicle-stimulating hormone, and low estradiol. So pan, 
across-the-board reduction in hormones, LH, FSH, estradiol, prolactin, and the MRI of the pituitary showed a low-volume pituitary with an empty cella. Something wrong with the pituitary gland. And so the quiz question asks the readers, what is the diagnosis? So give it some thought. If you know, that's great. This is a condition called Sheehan syndrome. And it's something important to know about. Sheehan syndrome is also called postpartum pituitary necrosis. And so that name gives what it's all about. But Sheehan syndrome refers to a disorder of the anterior pituitary that occurs after postpartum hemorrhage or hypovolemia. So bleeding and low volume status that occurs after delivery. The pituitary gland, the anterior pituitary is very dependent on blood flow and much more dependent than the posterior pituitary. And when there's hemorrhage and a reduction in blood flow, suddenly cells of the pituitary die. And so the loss of blood leads to damage to the anterior pituitary gland. And as a result, the anterior pituitary gland is impaired in its ability to manufacture hormones. The posterior pituitary is not as affected. And so postpartum hemorrhage and blood loss doesn't affect the posterior pituitary in the same way that it affects the anterior pituitary. What's so interesting about Sheehan syndrome is there's two forms. One form which occurs right away, where the anterior pituitary is all disrupted immediately, and another form which happens later, a chronic form. The chronic form is very difficult to diagnose unless you're thinking of it, because it happens long after, sometimes months, sometimes years after the postpartum period. Now, advances in obstetrical care over the last decades have reduced the incidence of Sheehan syndrome. So reducing postpartum hemorrhage, reducing bleeding, reduces the chances of blood loss and the anterior pituitary having necrosis or death of these cells. But a study in 2016 by Karaka estimated that about 5 in 100,000 births still have associated Sheehan syndrome. And it may be higher in developing countries on account of differences in obstetrical care. Now, the symptoms of Sheehan syndrome can be recognized and understood by realizing what the anterior pituitary gland makes. And the anterior pituitary gland makes and releases adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, growth hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, and prolactin. And so when you have necrosis of the anterior pituitary and that factory shut down, you get a reduction in ACTH, TSH, growth hormone, FSH, LH, and prolactin. And so these hormones are not available to travel to their destination, not available to travel to the thyroid to tell the thyroid make hormones, not available to travel to the ovaries to tell the ovaries to make estradiol. They're not available to travel to the adrenal glands to tell the adrenal glands to make hormones. And so you get hormone deficiencies on account of this reduction and depletion of these anterior pituitary hormones. So you get hypothyroidism, hypoadrenalism, ovarian insufficiency, adrenal insufficiency. Sometimes there's a true pan-hypopituitarism, so 
all these hormones are shut down across the board, shut off. But sometimes only a small number are shut off or depleted, and some, some others are functioning. And it was so remarkable, is there a certain order that hormones are depleted? Some become deficient first, and others are affected later. And the order from first to last is growth hormones affected first, prolactin next, FSH, LH next, ACTH next, and TSH last. And so when you get this necrosis of the pituitary gland, thyroid hormones can often stay produced for longer than other hormones, like growth hormone. So there's two presentations of Sheehan syndrome to know about. One is an acute presentation and one is a chronic presentation. Chronic means that the symptoms develop later, months or years later. Acute means it happens right away. The chronic is more common. So one of the most common symptoms of acute Sheehan syndrome is an inability to breastfeed. So a mother has had postpartum hemorrhage, bleeding, and is unable to breastfeed the baby. That's called agalactoria. That may be a sign of Sheehan syndrome. Now, of course, there's a story of postpartum hemorrhage and hypovolemia, sometimes requiring uh, emergency intervention and blood and sometimes volume and other emergency care interventions. Acute Sheehan syndrome is very serious. Women can die. And the key to the diagnosis is recognizing the possibility of Sheehan syndrome. Patients have low blood pressure and tachycardia because of the hemorrhaging. And that can lead one to think that the issue that needs to be addressed is the blood pressure and tachycardia. We need to volume replete these patients. We need to get them blood. But it's only when the clinician recognizes that there's other abnormalities going on, like hyponatremia, hypoglycemia, disorders in sodium, disorders in blood sugar, that there's a realization that there's a more widespread endocrine problem. The adrenal gland is not functioning properly. The recognition that, you know, other organs are not functioning properly leads the clinician to recognize that this is more than just a volume issue. This is more than just, let's get out packed red blood cells, let's get out more uh, volume support agents. That allows the clinician to recognize this may be pituitary necrosis. Now, chronic Sheehan syndrome can develop months or years later, and it's challenging to diagnose. It has a whole array of different symptoms, but the symptoms include irregular periods or complete loss of periods from the reduction and depletion in LH and FSH, hot flashes from low estrogen, early menopause, decreased sex drive from the low androgens, hypothyroidism, so fatigue, bradycardia, constipation, cold intolerance, weight gain, adrenal insufficiency with hypoglycemia, anemia, weight loss, hyponatremia, ongoing fatigue, and loss of axillary and pubic hair from the alterations in mainly adrenal and gonadal androgens, DHEAS and testosterone. But the key in this case is to realize that in patients with irregular periods, that come to hair clinic that are premenopausal, that we need to take this seriously. Now, of course, the patient may have absent periods from being on contraception, but if the patient is not on contraception, 
we need to perform a workup for all patients presenting with irregular periods or absent periods, because this may be a sign of an underlying endocrine issue. So women who come into clinic with hair-related issues with irregular periods, we certainly want to be thinking about a number of things. We want to be thinking about polycystic ovarian syndrome. We want to be thinking about ovarian insufficiency and early menopause. Uh, we want to be thinking about Cushing syndrome. We want to be thinking about other disorders of the pituitary. We want to be thinking about the female athlete triad. We want to be thinking about anorexia nervosa and eating disorders. We want to be thinking about disorders of prolactin, hyperprolactinemia. But I think when patients come in to see us with irregular periods or absent, absent periods, we really want to be thinking about a constellation of blood tests to order. Now, you might decide to refer the patient and have the endocrinologist or gynecologist order these blood tests, but many of these blood tests can be readily ordered, and they include CBC, TSH, estradiol, LH, FSH, prolactin, cortisol, testosterone, DHEAS, IGF-1, sometimes growth hormone. And if there are somewhat regular periods, sometimes you want to order those on the third or fifth day of the period, third to fifth day of the period. But if periods are not present or extremely irregular, just order them. Sometimes you might want to order a 17-hydroxyprogesterone as well if there's irregular periods and you're thinking about congenital adrenal hyperplasia. In the case of suspected Sheehan syndrome, you want to also add sodium levels. You want to add blood sugar levels to capture the hyponatremia and hypoglycemia that can occur. But the finding of low pituitary hormones across the board with a history and physical suggesting Sheehan syndrome and a history of postpartum hemorrhage will allow you to make a diagnosis of Sheehan syndrome. Patients will return with low LH, low FSH, low TSH, low prolactin, low cortisol, and you know, often a panhypopituitarism, but remember, there may be selective pituitary hormones that are depleted. Sometimes an MRI is done by the endocrinologist or the other physician providing care, and the finding of an empty, empty cella where the pituitary normally sits is present in 70% of patients, and a partially empty, empty cella is present in 30% of patients. How do you treat it? Well, you identify what hormones are deficient, and you give back those hormones. And so this patient was given back corticosteroids through uh, a hydrocorticosteroid product, thyroid hormones, estrogen, and progesterone, with a dramatic improvement of her symptoms. And sometimes you don't get the hair back, like the axillary and pubic hair, but you get improvements in the way people feel. You get improvements in the lethargy, improvements in libido, improvements in uh, the general well-being of these patients. And it happens very quickly. So a nice case of, of Sheehan syndrome that really reminds us about the broad differential in patients presenting with loss of pubic and axillary hair. Of course, we want to be thinking about patients in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s with loss of pubic and axillary hair as having frontal fibrosing alopecia, having alopecia areata. Those are really important things to always have on your differential. But we need good histories, and the histories always date back to birth. And it doesn't take long, but you want to find out. Do you have any surgeries in childhood? Do you have any surgeries in adolescence? Were you a healthy child? Did you have a healthy adolescence? Um, 
Were you as tall as your other classmates? Were you overweight as a child? Did you have any dental problems? Did you have any eye surgeries? You quickly can get a sense. A child that sprouts is super tall in grade three, four, five, and has had irregular periods. Yes, 13, 17, 20. And has hirsutism and androgenetic hair loss. And was the tallest child in grade three. That may be suggestive of congenital adrenal hyperplasia. A patient with 40 years of age that doesn't have periods, but had regular periods, 20, 25, 30, didn't have postpartum hemorrhage, and doesn't have periods anymore, and has, uh, you know, hair loss, some hair loss on the body, loss of libido, infertility. You want to be thinking about ovarian insufficiency and early menopause. And so... Periods are really important, and a menstrual history is really important. And this was such a great case of 19 years prior, an event, postpartum hemorrhage, that led to anterior pituitary necrosis and Sheehan syndrome. So we move on now to a really fascinating study of the life and death of uh, Ludwig van Beethoven, and a study in current biology which caught my attention titled Genomic Analysis of Hair from Ludwig van Beethoven. It's almost coming up to 200 years since the death of Beethoven in Vienna on March the 26th, 1827. And a new study reveals that hair analyses uncovered some of the reasons for Beethoven's illness and perhaps his death. And this study which was done by analyzing hairs, showed that hepatitis B infection and a predisposition, genetic predisposition to liver disease, along with long-term alcohol use, likely contributed to Beethoven's death on March 26th. So that was 196 years ago. And he died on March 26th after a long illness, and he was just 56 years old. And his wish was for the cause of his illness to be studied after his death. And so by digging out these hairs from museums and analyzing samples was indeed his wish. And in fact, Beethoven wrote a letter to his brother in 1802, about 25 years before his death, asking that his doctor, Dr. Johann Schmidt, go about trying to figure out the cause of his illness if he did die. Now, Beethoven outlived his doctor, And it was discovered in a writing desk after Beethoven's death in a will that this is what Beethoven wanted. And it's quoted from Beethoven as saying, as far as possible, at least the world will be reconciled to me after my death. And he wished his cause of death to be determined. So he had several health problems throughout his life, and that began with hearing loss in his late 20s. And he became somewhat deaf, and it's controversial. Originally, it was thought that he was totally deaf. And there's some thought amongst historians that perhaps he wasn't totally deaf. But I'll leave that to your own reading and detective work. But there's new data that draws question to how completely deaf he was in the final years. But he certainly lived the last nine years extremely hard of hearing, if not deaf. And he continued to compose, but he stopped performing in his mid-40s. And Beethoven was an absolute virtuoso. 
who had an ability to improvise like no other. And that decision to stop performing would have been extremely um, sad for Beethoven, as he was a great, great virtuoso of his time. And so for 30 years, from age 22 to his death, he had severe abdominal pains and diarrhea. And he became quite sick in December 1826. He had jaundice, his abdomen became swollen, and he ultimately died in Vienna on March 26, 1826. In the afternoon, there was a storm, and it's thought that there was lightning striking Vienna at the time, and Beethoven passed away at that time. And so in a new study by Begg in Current Biology, the researchers took additional steps to honor Beethoven's request to have the cause of his death better understood. And so they analyzed preserved locks of hair and sequenced the genome of Beethoven for the first time. They took eight hair samples from public and private collections across the UK, Europe, and the US as well. And in trying to authenticate the samples, they discovered that two of these samples that had been proposed to be Beethoven's hair actually weren't Beethoven's hair at all. And so two of them were out, and one was too damaged to analyze. So there were five samples of hair to analyze. And the data showed that Beethoven had a predisposition to liver disease, and that he was infected with hepatitis B, likely in the final months before his death. And his history was that of chronic alcohol use. And it's thought that together with high alcohol use, the hepatitis B infection, and his genetic predisposition to liver disease, that this contributed to his death. And the hair analysis could not uncover the cause of his deafness or his gastrointestinal disorder. So Beethoven, Ludwig van Beethoven, as he would be known, was really one of the great composers of classical music, as you're all very well aware. He was a piano virtuoso, and he was wildly popular. He was the star of the time, and few could improvise like him. And so here was a man who really had so much going for him in his 20s. He lost his mother at, at 16. His father had chronic alcohol use disorder and was said to be abusive. And in fact, at 18, Ludwig had to obtain an order to force his father to pay support to his family. And Ludwig had such a key role in, in helping his family and his nephew as well. And his father died soon after, and Beethoven moved to Vienna in his 20s to study, and he studied with the, the famous Haydn. And so here we have a virtuoso in his mid-twenties, a rock star, that had now composed his first symphony, his first piano concertos, his first string quartets. He's ready to take on the world, and he starts to lose his hearing. And he recognized that this was to be a chronic disease. And it's well understood that Beethoven suffered not only the physical issues of this condition, but the emotional issues as well. And he said to have stated that if I belonged to any other profession, it would be easier. But in my profession, it is a frightful state. 
Beethoven was very much isolated by this. He had thoughts of suicide. In the last decades, he carried around a conversation book, and if people wanted to speak with him, they would write in a conversation book, and Beethoven would then reply verbally. A teacher once told him he had absolutely no future as a composer, and he would go on to be one of the giants of the music world, in the, the classical music world, of course, with over 700 works. And even in his final years, he would go on to compose some of the works that are viewed as some of the greatest of all times, including his famous Ninth Symphony. Thank you, Beethoven, for what you have done to and given to the world. So that concludes this week. I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. We talked about scalp pruritus and dermatomyositis, the intractable scalp pruritus that is thought to be due to a neuropathy and this depletion of epidermal nerve fibers and this wonderful study by Chirino. We talked about scurvy and scurvy being very much with us and up to 7% of the U.S. population having um, vitamin C insufficiency and depletion. We talked about cutaneous pili migrans, this unusual condition where hair moves under the skin and can be mistaken for cutaneous larva migrans. We talked about Sheehan syndrome and the postpartum hemorrhage leading to necrosis of the anterior pituitary, which depletes all of these hormones, LH, FSH, TSH, growth hormone, prolactin, ACTH, and leads to all these hormone uh, abnormalities, which can have systemic impact on the patient. This patient presenting 19 years later with really feeling unwell and having a history of absent periods and the importance of taking a good menstrual history in women presenting with any hair loss concern. And then we talked about the hair analysis in the great Beethoven and how this genomic analysis allowed us to identify that there was probably some genetic predisposition to liver disease in Beethoven and together with his chronic alcohol use and hepatitis B infection in the last few months that these may have contributed to his death. So thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to seeing you again next week. It'll be the first Monday of the month of April and we'll be talking about studies in androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata. And I look forward to welcoming you back for another episode of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Thanks so much.